I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist, a filmmaker, and I'm curious about Africa's killers, criminals, and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent, as always, is Jared Labaskakni, the former cop and current head of an LNS threat management who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. Um, I hope everyone's had a good week. We're back with another episode. Jared, how are you doing? How has your week been? Week has been pretty good. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, kind of ended off last week with uh, going to Nicole Engelbrecht's book launch for her recent book in uh, Inclusive Books in Clearwater Mall, which was very well attended. So that was great fun. Uh, a couple of people recognized me, and uh, so I ended up signing a couple of my own books. But wow. um, took a selfie with Nicole. But yeah, so that's been... Oh, no, and some, obviously, as we're going to discuss, some interesting cases that have popped onto the radar in South Africa. You know that you're going to have to like start your own alcohol brand soon, like a, like a swimwear range. You know, now you're big time getting recognized. You're, you're a, a celebrity now. These are the things you have to do when you're a celebrity. You have to, you have to have a really interesting Instagram account. Mm. Just part of this, mm. you know, where you have to be interesting and witty and jump on board with some of the popular trends that go on there. It's all part of being a celebrity, Jared. You're not just a guy out there hunting bad people anymore. No. Um, so, so for those who don't know, Nicole, um, Nicole Engelbrecht. Uh, produces and hosts the True Crime South Africa podcast, which is a wonderful series of podcasts. We love Nicole. Uh, I can think of it as a sister podcast. Exactly. And we actually do work together with her. She she helps with some of the TV stuff that we make. So so we love Nicole. I think, you know, the crime community in the country is quite small, the crime content community. So I, I see everyone within the community as kind of friends and allies um, rather than kind of competitors, isn't it? Um, hopefully we'll get Nicole on the show and 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 because you've been on Nicole's show, haven't you? Yeah, so she interviewed me. Times. I think with book number one and book number two, she did quite a nice lengthy episode on yes. the books. So, yeah. Now this also raises another point: is that once again we always get feedback. Today, last week it was kind of like, oh, with your new format, guys, it's so nice. You know, with Paul not talking as much, <laughs> it's so nice to be able to now hear, uh, you know, more of Gerald's point of view as your guest, and it's like. Let the guest talk, Paul. I just want to point out two things. First of all, you're not really the guest. Yes, yeah, okay? we're co-hosts. You're not the guest, we're co-hosts, okay? <laughs> and the second thing is that our podcast format is really a discussion, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, Nicole's podcast is very well prepared, researched, the telling of these stories. Ours is kind of more the... Um, we make it up you know, on the fly. That's the main, she's the mainstream. She's the, you know, she's the cool professional version. We're the, you know... We're the skellums, do, mm. you know, doing podcasts behind the bike shed. Mm. You know, we were we're thinking of having guests, aren't we, as, as, as a possibility Oh, we will have future, guests. Yeah. Yes, we will have guests, definitely. There are some wonderful people we've come across making the TV shows, like, um, like Quinton Taylor from The Sizzler's Massacre, the, mm. the only survivor of The Sizzler's Massacre, mm. who I had the chance to interview for a couple of hours. Um, um, just, ugh, just amazing. You know, I mean, 
terribly morbid, obviously, but um, so interesting to speak to somebody who's been mm. through that and has a perspective, a first-hand kind of perspective, victim perspective. You know, we get your first-hand investigator perspective, which is so wonderful. Um, but to hear the victim, like, really talk about, you know, he spoke about the fact that um, when they were tying them all up, he insisted, he was the only one who insisted on lying on his back because um, he kind of figured that they were going to kill them and he didn't want to be lying on his stomach when they came around to kill them because he said that would make that made him more scared of the prospect he wanted to be able to look them in the eye when they came to kind of to to execute them in the in the room there so it's just in, it's so interesting to hear from things like that being told yeah. from the people who were there um so guys on that because i am talking quite a lot at the start podcast which i'm not going to start i'm not going to talk about this talking too much thing ever again after this okay um but yeah we are a discussion format so um it's more about me and gerard kind of shooting the breeze when it comes to uh, crime stories and crime discussions that we find interesting and, and not and the discussions we do obviously try to center around specific cases and in particular cases that gerard was involved in so that's just the nature of what we do we hope you enjoy the podcast if you don't we're terribly sorry. Can't make everyone 100% happy, can we? Anyway, on to today's show. We are going to do something which is something which people often ask about on social media, and that is to discuss some current cases. So we're going to kick off with a little bit of a discussion on some of the um, interesting cases that have been in the press lately, because there have been some really interesting cases in the press lately. Mm. Um, uh, and Gerard obviously has been kind of... Um, uh, I don't want to say sticking your nose in because you know you don't but you know but your curiosity has been leading you to kind of find out what's going on a little bit in, in the cases and behind the scenes there so um, Gerard which cases are we going to discuss that are currently in the news let's talk about some interesting current cases starting off with downtown Joburg six bodies found in a warehouse mm. a young man arrested his father seems to own the property tell us the story yeah so this kind of burst onto the news last week monday that was the 10th yeah and it kind of seemed to have happened on about the the, the sunday but of course things don't appear in the news necessarily immediately uh, long story short um yeah six bodies in different sort of stages of decomposition were found um and it seems in a way yeah sort of like a warehouse a business premises in downtown johannesburg it's a bit unsure whether it was first the police's attention were called to it because of sort of, you know, very horrible, foul-smelling smells coming out of this sort of premises. Uh, kind of sounds like the Jeffrey Dahmer um, series is happening in the same way. Or did, you know, initial investigations into a missing person kind of led them to this guy who stays here or works here or his, his dad, I think, owns that property. So we're not quite 100% sure on the, the, the exact stories how it kind of burst onto the scene. But long story short... The police essentially found six bodies, seemed to all be female, various stages of decomposition. The last lady had gone missing, I think, the, the Saturday night, possibly. Uh, the bodies were then discovered on the Sunday. Um, and she was obviously then in, in, a, in a sort of a, a much fresher condition than the other bodies. Again, there's also conflicting stories. Were they all in one room? Were they all in a vehicle, somewhere in vehicles? I've even heard somewhere in the alley behind the premises. So again, those initial stories, not uncommon in, you know, that, that what you hear in the media is not going to be an accurate representation. Um, <clears throat> so we have to always, with a pinch of salt, um, sort of figure out what's uh, accepted as anything as a fact, at least in these initial phases, uh, based on what you read in the media. 
Um, but they all do seem to be sex workers, you know. Um, the, apparently there were missing re missing persons reports opened up for, if not all of these ladies, most of these ladies, because they all seem to have gone missing kind of when they were on duty at work. Now, again, we're not sure whether they're all working at the same, for the same business or were they all, you know, sex workers at different sort of places. But I, I heard somewhere someone saying that, you know, these, these girls would be booked out with this, this guy and then just never return. I think that would lead to the, the missing persons report. So on the one hand, you can also sort of say, Hmm, I wonder if the police, in terms of their missing persons, you know, investigators were wondering, hey, we've had a, a bunch of ladies who have gone missing. They all happen to be sex workers in this area of Johannesburg, if not even at the same venue. Did that trigger any warning signs? Because, again, that, you know, if that should have triggered concern. We suddenly have X amount of ladies all at work, all described as being picked up by a guy and, and not returning. You know, that's... That's suspicious. That should be a raising uh, an area of, of concern, for sure. But there can be the issue that um, sex workers, you know, sex workers historically, you know, if you watch in countries where sex workers are quite typical victims, um, a problem tends to be that the police do not kind mm. of act with as much Zeal. Um, zeal on cases that involve sex yeah. workers. Without a doubt, I think there, there, there are attitudes towards sex workers that the public hold, the police hold, etc., um, which is sad. Um, I mean, nobody wakes up as a, as a young child and says, oh, I can't, I, my career aspiration is to be a sex worker. People end up in that profession because things don't work out the way they would like to have worked out in their lives. So, um, so yes, I mean, they, they are the victims definitely of abuse by the police, abuse by their clients, abuse by society. Sometimes that's criminal abuse, etc. Uh, but as you said, they're not typically actually your South African serial murder victims. We see that actually quite rarely because in South Africa, you don't have to lure a sex worker. You just offer someone a job, which you can also say, off, you know, picking up a sex worker is essentially also offering them a job. Um, but we typically don't see sex workers in South Africa. And, and interestingly enough, when we do in the past see sex workers being consistently targeted as as um, victims it typically is actually a white suspect in south africa not a black suspect and explain just just explain in detail why that is just well like i said you know if you look at the majority of our serial murderers in south africa they're offering and our serial rapists they're offering employment to their victims so they'll literally hang around in a near a taxi rank or wherever there's people passing by they'll approach a lady and say look are you looking for a job and because we have such a huge unemployment rate you know, probably the majority of the people you're approaching either don't have a job or looking for a better job or know someone who's looking for a job. So it's very easy to get a complete stranger to go with you if you can just be convincing enough that they think you actually do potentially have a job offer for them. Or they'll say, meet me here later with your ID book, and that even sounds less worrying. Mm. So it's very easy to lure someone through that means than... You don't even have to go. So in America, you know, if I tell my colleagues overseas that that's how majority of our serial murderers operate, they go, but why does anybody go with someone? Well, they don't have that level of desperation amongst their people in, in, in Europe and the United States for jobs. So yes, in America, they wouldn't work. That's why you do have to pick up a sex worker who will get into your car, go to a secluded place, and then, of course, you do whatever it is you're going to do with them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really just the socioeconomics of our circumstances that we don't have to do that. Yeah. So, but it might be more strange for, for example, a white guy standing on a street corner in downtown Joburg offering people jobs off the street. So how would a, a, a white guy pick up a lot of victims easier is potentially sex workers. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, my opinion as to why we don't see that as common victimology. We don't need to because we've got such high employment rates. When it does happen, 
it's typically a guy who would stand out on the street corner ask, offering jobs, which would be a white guy. So he would do it in a bit of a different way, which might tend to be yeah. sex workers. Yes, if you and I wanted to be serial killers, it, we would be much. We would be quite conspicuous in a Bree Street taxi yeah, rank, absolutely looking for victims. Um, so we would be more likely to be scouring the streets yeah. in our cars looking for sex workers at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. The other, the other aspect of sex workers is that sex workers are often considered to be slightly disconnected from their family structure, from yep. their typical home structure, much like a lot of victims would typically be who are, you know, looking for some kind of economic opportunity, migrant laborers from, yep. out, from out of the country who often become victims of serial killers in South Africa. Which is potentially why we don't always have them ID'd. Exactly. So people who are mm. not, not going to be remembered, who possibly aren't even going to be identified, mm. which plays into your corner as a serial killer as well doesn't it yeah and and this is in a way there's various factors and i think it's very sad which is i personally think why we should legalize sex work because we can bring these people out of the shadows where they don't have to worry about as much about being abused by the police because they're doing a legit a legal job they're not doing a job that is against the law yeah. that's where the power abuse comes in from their clients and by the police is you know, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. So, you know, chances of you going to report to the police and also if we are the police, who are you reporting it to? My colleagues back at the police station. So I do think if it's legitimized, it, it makes it safer for them. It can be a regulated industry. There can be health checks. Uh, and I think it is, it's, it's there right now and it's illegal. So, you know, clearly legal is not solving so the issue. There is some, whether it's a tiniest part, but there's some portion of the police effort that is being allocated to that i mean it'd rather not have the police distracted by something yeah. when there are, there are a lot worse things that they mm. should be should and could be doing as so, well so i do think like here if it is true that there were multiple uh, missing persons reported probably it would be at probably the same station because if this is a small geographical area where these ladies came from it probably would have gone to one maybe two stations for me just as someone who was into serials i'd be very very disappointed that if there's suddenly we have a bunch of sex workers we've been reported missing and they were all on duty, I mean, that should scream out, hmm, hang on, there's something we need to investigate further about these these people and their disappearance. And After two or three. Yeah, uh, so that's, again, at least. I think potential failures of early possibilities to detect a serial active. Um, I just know from my own experience that we would often go look at missing persons reports when we're trying to identify bodies we've found. And... It's so varied. I would probably say that 80% of the time there's bugger all done on a missing persons report if it's an adult. Um, and other part of the time, I don't know, it's just not something that I think it's hit and miss whether anybody's going to be putting any effort into actually tracing missing persons and probably more likely 80% it's not going to be a hit. Has Are you aware of whether or not your old unit is mm. involved in the case? So, yes. So I have heard that they were called in uh, or getting involved. Um, I do know the Victim Identification Center, which is that police specialized forensic unit that looks at identifying bodies, unidentified bodies, mass disaster bodies, is getting called in to help identify them conclusively from a scientific point of view. Um, you know, the problem is, I think it was about already three or four years ago that that policy on serial investigation was signed off by the minister and is supposed to be implemented. Nobody in the police knows about that policy except a handful of people. And it doesn't seem like the, what the policy says must happen whenever there's a concern for a serial. It just doesn't seem like people apply it. So how far they're going to get involved? I mean, if you have detectives who are just sort of, sorry, we're not interested, um, 
you know, it, it, it makes it more frustrating. So they should be, they should be involved in the interviewing of this guy. The last thing you want is, is a random detective who had one of these cases who doesn't know anything about serials interviewing this guy. Because this case isn't about the six bodies, it's about the other cases, the other victims we don't know about. There's stories that he had been arrested for a rape. I, th I don't know if it's a sex worker or not, previously had been awaiting trial and the case was withdrawn. That case needs to be revisited now. Was it withdrawn because of the prosecutor didn't feel there's a good chance of getting a conviction because maybe she was a sex worker. I don't know. Um, but if you add that onto these six cases now, um, you probably stand a very good chance of a conviction. And what about other ladies who, who didn't report it to now hear about it? No, that's the guy. So you really want to catch all these other cases. And maybe there are other bodies somewhere else that we don't know about. So you should really be going to all those missing persons reports again and saying, wow, are there other sex workers who are still missing? that might just be this guy who left them somewhere else, hmm. you know, on the street. And maybe the bodies were picked up at the mortuary. So, you know, you're an idiot if you just stop with these six cases. You, a proper serial investigation would be looking far and wide. It would be looking at where's this guy lived in the past five years. I mean, if he was staying in somewhere in KZN, we want to go check out down there if they're not possible cases of sex workers that have found, gone missing or bodies who are found missing persons reports. So. It's not just these six. These six would be always the tip of the iceberg. You cannot say that's all the six that this guy has targeted. Like I said, there's victims that he might have targeted, like possibly this rape case where he didn't try and kill them or they got away. Um, there's a whole bunch of other things that need to be followed up that a proper serial investigation would be doing. There's also, you know, people were saying, oh, he's only charged with one. Is that, a, you know, what the cops are messing around or they're looking at that as some criticism? In these cases where suddenly the, the, the case has exploded on the scene, you'll often just charge the person with, for now, the one that's the strongest, just to keep him in custody to oppose bail while you sort out the rest of the investigation. Doesn't mean he's not going to be put on trial for all six or even more, like I said, that might pop up as time goes by. So I'm not worried about the fact that only now charge him with just one. That's very common as you do your investigation conclusively id the people link him to those people etc you'll, you'll add those 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 cases to it and like i said hopefully more that we'll find out about that weren't reported or reported and withdrawn for various reasons against this very same guy so that i'm not too concerned about i'm just concerned that he doesn't get bail that's the bigger issue um so yeah i mean obviously you know we, we might have people who have identified these decomposing bodies through clothing that's never good enough. You'll definitely want to see if they can't get the fingerprints off. And, and one of the techniques they use on very decomposed bodies is they literally slide off the skin. The outer layer becomes separated from the under, under layer. Slide that off, put on a forensic investigation, those, those blue gloves, slide that skin onto the person's hands, and then actually do, you roll it like you would roll normal fingerprints if you're going to, for like an ID book that you're applying, etc. And then try and ID the victim. I bet not a lot of people knew that. I, yeah. I've heard that once before, I think you've told yeah, me. Yeah, it's and gruesome, um, and it shows the extent that the forensics people will go to you yeah. know, figure out ways. And if the skin's very dried out, they will, they will soften it up and do the same procedure. That's to, to sort of figure out who could this person be. If we already have a suspicion that it's person A, B, and C from the missing persons reports, we can do that, the fingerprinting, but you could also then use the dental records of this lady, if she had had dental work done, we compare the dental records of, to, the, to what we found you know, in the skull. Of course, DNA it would be another mechanism. So just IDing a decomposed body based on clothing or it kind of looks the same is never the ideal. You definitely want to take it further with forensic um, uh, conclusive means of identifying the body. So just to sum up, last 
your thoughts on on how this case is likely being handled now to compare to how it would have been handled when 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 you were in the unit yeah um i'd like to think that you know before we i don't know if they still have it we would have had provincial coordinators for serials so when we hear about something in a province like this or whether it's in a different province we'd say hey colonel makubela you need to find out and that's usually an experienced senior member of the investigation detective service in that province so he usually quickly knows phone this person phone this person and he would facilitate the involvement of our unit and also make sure they're not doing stuff yet that we don't want them to do because it might be not great from what we typically experience in serial investigations like interviewing the guy immediately like whoa hang on let's let's find out a bit more about this guy and the crimes and then get the strategize our interview because this is your golden opportunity to get the guy to confess so that's what should have been happening. I don't know if that is. Um, and if you don't have that provincial coordinator facilitating, you often get, you know, the provincial, if, if this, for example, goes to the provincial investigation team, kind of they think, we don't need you. We're experts. We don't need your advice. You know, we, we're very experienced detectives. Great if you have someone on that team who is, has been trained and has worked on serials. But if they don't, they're going to do what they think is great for a murder investigation, but they don't understand serial investigations. So... Um, I haven't sort of checked in with my old unit to see how things are going, uh, how involved they're getting. I just know that they were getting involved. But like I said, the early days are really when you, you don't want to come involved a week, two weeks down the line because mistakes could have been made that you can't undo at that point in time. So, Gerard, I've got a great question. Just came up with it. Is this a serial? A good question, Paul, because, you know, when you find a bunch of bodies at once, the big question is, were they all killed at once? The fact that you found them at once doesn't mean they all passed away. And I've had this previously a good couple of years ago in Centurion, um, where as as some rains had happened, um, a body was found outside of a drain pipe. And then, you know, a day or two later, and it was a, a person of a, a, an Asian, a Chinese person, and a day or two later, another body was found. And a day or two later, another body was found. And of course, there was serial, 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 third body in this area over the past week. And people from universities were going, this is definitely a serial killer. Us, who knew the backstory of the case, realized, was aware that a Chinese family had been kidnapped and murdered. Mother, father, kids, everything. At the same time, thrown in the sewer, or the drain in the, what do you call a water system, um, and as the rains had come, the bodies had slowly just washed out one by one. So it wasn't a serial. So it is an important thing to try and figure out. And in this case, we definitely know that the most recent victim, the one that he's currently charged for, he was seen, like I said, the night before, the two nights before, you know, he was arrested with that lady. Whereas the other bodies, when they went and searched, were very decomposed. So we definitely know that there's a gap between the current victim and definitely the other victims. So that already was enough to say it's a serial because the definition we use is two separate murders. That's been accepted in our courts in, uh, in Neisner with the Heine von Royen uh, serial murder cases, um, with the uh, Rian Stander that we've talked about, the PE sex worker. You know, two was accepted in South African courts as enough to be regarding something as a serial. So just that alone, that there's other bodies in this more recent case, would be enough to be it was a serial. And we'll probably find that these ladies were actually 
picked up on, you know, he didn't take four home and kill four. You know, not, that's not how it kind of works with your sex worker. So, yeah, I'm pretty com- comfortable and confident to say this is going to be a serial. Just any comment on his age? I mean, 21 is fairly young. Yeah, another good point. So, you know, when we did our research uh, on, 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 on a, a big large-scale research many years ago on our serials, which was published in one of the, in the Journal of um, Investigative Psychology editions, I think 2015, it was a whole special edition on South African serial murder. And we found that the average age is 29. Now, average means that's when you add up everybody's and you divide by the number of suspects you have in your research. So the average age is 29. Um, which, of course, we've had people like Jack Mahali who was operating in his 40s when he started his murders, at least. But then, as you know, we've had one of the cases that we've worked on, you and I have just worked on for a documentary series. I think that, that girl was, I think, 13, 14 when she committed her first. Mm. We had a case in Friedendahl when the young guy was 16 when he committed his first. So the spectrum is, you know, from, you know, 13, 14, 15 up to the 40s. So he's a little bit younger than the norm. But that, again, doesn't mean that much. It, you know, because we've had across the spectrum, but he's just a bit younger than the average. Um, so again, you know, we, we want to know, was this the first? Did he start even earlier? Um, but we also know once you are a serial, you're a serial forever. So your risk would probably be until the day you die um, with a bit of tapering off in terms of your risk, you'll be a risk to killing people. And everyone's kind of recently watched the Dharma story yeah. as well, and you see there how his kind of how he his first victim was at a very young age. I think he was seventeen. Yeah, Dharma was seventeen at the time. So mm. as his kind of sexuality, you know, his he was coming to sexual maturity. Mm. That urge which he knew about for a long time, he was now kind yeah. of too too overwhelming to ignore and, and yeah. um, overcame him. And, and even if these are his only six so far, what was the lead up to it? Like I said, we had that attempted rape or there's a rape case that he was allegedly accused of. So what's lovely to get the full picture to understand the buildup of this case. And of course, what did he actually do with these victims? Was it mm-hmm. sort of the typical South African thing, uh, you know, rape and strangle with your hands or with an item of clothing and leave them? Or did he do more horrific things? We just don't know that at, at this particular point in time exactly what he did. Was it the stock standards? stuff we see in South Africa or was it something more out of the ordinary mm. certainly a very interesting case mm. um, from like a, it feels like a like a like a really uh, solid serial killer mm. case um, and he his place is a couple of a couple of buildings down from a friend of mine who mm. as well so she's like, apparently she's a bit, she seems to be from her social media but freaked out about the fact that this happened right on her block kind of thing. And that's always that thing, why serial murderers are so scary, because it's not the person you expect. It's it's not far-flung areas. It's it's yeah. it's around here. I mean, if I could take people through a tour of Gauteng of places where I've been to crime scenes of serial murderers, they'd be, be, probably be quite shocked. Yeah, they're not coming out of their sick, their, their evil lairs. Um, what, what other cases have been on well, the radar Well, I saw in the news, because when I was being interviewed on uh, ENCA last week about this particular case, they, they mentioned it in Tualume, which is, I think, south of Durban. Yes. Uh, one or two bodies have been found in a field, and in, in KZN, sugarcane fields and the bushes are, tip, you know, it's, it's, it's very common there for where we, how we find our bodies. But then as I was sort of Googling just to find some updated information on the case, it seems in 2020 there were a bunch of bodies being found in the fields of bushes in Mtolume. It seemed like someone had been arrested who then committed suicide in the cells. Now, of course, the big question in the police cells. In other words, he hadn't yet been to trial, etc. And I don't know ultimately what evidence they had linking him to those 2020 cases. I think there were like six ladies who also had been murdered over a period of time. Um, and whether was he conclusively linked? Because if he 
wasn't conclusively linked is this our same Intualume guy who's operating again after a hiatus of a year or two, and that guy who committed suicide wasn't our guy. Um, so interesting. Uh, as I said, that was just a quick Google search that I came up across the 2020. And I do recall actually speaking about that in the media, a guy that who committed suicide, and I said, that's also a failure. That guy should never have committed suicide because we don't then get more information. We don't get, we don't conclusively, there's not going to be a trial. There'll be an inquest into the deaths. Uh, we lose so much when we don't have a trial of an offender. The families don't get answers they want. And like I said, you know, what evidence was there linking that guy to the cases? And, and again, it's not about the cases we know about. It's about the cases we don't yet know about. That's mm. really what a proper serial investigation is. I don't know why the thought of the kind of highwayman versus the quarry killer then pops into my head. Mm. Because, uh, you know, as much as, yes, it could be the same person, could also, yeah. Yeah. you know, in South Africa, can also just as likely in the same area be too Absolutely. I mean, Durban has been traditionally, we've, I had many cases, and before my time, there were many cases down in, in, the, down in the Durban and surrounding areas. Um, you know, Joburg, Pretoria, Cape Town are probably the four, the cities that spring to mind as having probably the most, just without doing a proper tally. Then you get sort of the PE ones, you know, Kimberley has had a couple too, you know. So, yeah, so, but um, you can't just assume uh, you need to investigate. Um, and I hope after that guy committed suicide, they just didn't kind of let the thing kind of just fizzle out. You know, you proper serial investigation goes on, hmm. even if a guy. And we've had one, uh, another guy in Soweto who committed suicide in the police cells. He was later DNA linked. Um, it's just never a good ending, you know, yeah. although we can say, yeah, he's dead. Well, I think we don't get the answers we need and society needs. And more importantly, the, the victim's families would like to have more clearer answers, or even if it's just his explanation why he did it, hmm. you know, or you know, something like that from a court, from a trial. When you look at both of these cases, if I think about both of these cases now, what's also just worth re-bringing up is the, is the fact that when you were there, we could be confident, if we were having this discussion and you, well, we wouldn't be having this discussion if you were still there, but if I was having this discussion with somebody else and you were still there, we'd be talking about, you know, I think there'd be that confidence that you were all over these cases because mm. they so up your guy's alley. They would have landed in your unit or you would have kind of stepped into these cases um, as would have been your mm. right to do. Um, whereas now we just it's really hard to figure that out, isn't mm. it? Even for you, who is a, a former <clears throat> insider, because I don't know if people listening to the podcast realize this, but you are not necessarily it's not that you have a bad relationship with the police now. Mm -mm. But you're not necessarily a friend of the police. You're not somebody who gets called upon on a regular basis now to come back mm. and contribute as somebody who is a, still a part of the police community, albeit a non-serving mm. officer. Once you leave the police, you kind of leave and then, yeah. and then they kind of they forget that they have your number. Yeah, I mean, as I think I discussed it in my books, I think book one, you know, the police, it's a funny organization. They... They don't have this culture of using outside consultants because it's such a big organization. They tend to try and do everything in-house compared to, say, a small police station in the United States, which is it's, it's funded by the local community and, and, and it has very often limited access. So they often use outsiders as consultants when necessary. So SAPS is one of those organizations where if you reach retirement age, they thank you so much, pat you on the back, shake you the hand, give you the going away function, and off you go into the sunset. They don't use you any thereafter for anything. They don't give you a contract to come and supervise dockets or things like that. If you resign, in other words, pre-retirement, like I did, and you leave, they're very much against 
using you for your skills. They're like, well, we used to have you working for us for a salary. We're not going to pay you those exorbitant consultant rates per hour. Um, they just have that attitude, which is a very self-destructive attitude. Mm-hmm. We've seen little bits in here where, where they have ventured outwards, like your cyber, cyber analysis of computers, like for child porn cases where they need to download the hard drive and look for child porn and forensically capture the information. Um, they do seem to slowly be making use of private uh, companies to do that aspect for them, which I do think the police should be doing far more public-private collaborations. If if, if there's a private company out there that can do this better than you, faster than you, um, why aren't we using them? You know, because what typically happens in the police, as I've noticed, when the management falls apart, they don't you know update the license the licenses that they have for the software. So boom, now they can't use it. Now it's a fat process and a hassle to now get the money and the funding to reactivate the license or they run out of dna chemicals like they know how much they need so it's not like whoa we suddenly had an uptake of 10 times more dna than before we went through our chemicals faster than we normally do it's just bad management that you know six if you know it takes six months to order your chemicals to go through the the paperwork you know you should be then starting this nine months before you're expecting to run out so you never have a run out but so it's bad management that a lot of things have fallen through in that sense. But but what I'm coming back to is that SAPS doesn't reach out to people that they use, they used to work for them for their expertise. Informally, yes. So I'll get a lot of cops who say, oh, Gerard, can, you want, can I have a phone call about this case? He said, I'll happily just, I'm not going to, obviously, I'm not going to charge anybody. Now I'll give my thoughts to whoever uh, is an investigating officer asking for my ideas. Yeah. But to be, I mean, that's haphazard. And that's, you know, if, I, if I'm free, I'm happy to do that. But, you know, you need, if you want a professional service, you you got to do it professionally. Yeah, it's sad to think that um, to kind of help a police organization, it would be, you know, if you went to another country, they're more likely to yeah. hire you. Yeah. And that's a country where all of your knowledge is a little bit out of context. Mm. You know, here, the strength of your knowledge is kind of doubled by the fact that you're also an expert in the context. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas there, your knowledge is still super valuable, obviously, and is something that the police mm. would be able to use and or police organizations around the world would be able to use and, mm. and benefit from. Um, yeah, it's just a, a, one of those sad things. So, so I do get the feeling that's... life, isn't it? Yeah, the past couple of years... Like, I'm not saying it's because I was there at the time. I just think a lot of things since I've since 2016 when I've left, in general, seem to have crumbled. Like the DNA is now suddenly, you know, backlogs of huge yeah. time periods and numbers. Um, and again, it's not because I left. Um, it just seems that the policing and the control over it and how it was functioning and operating has crumbled a lot in the mm-hmm. past six years. So this thing about, and this is what the feeling when I speak to my colleagues, Nick, you know, that the IPS isn't, jumping in there right from the start and running with the guys not because ips doesn't want to but because you know you're just getting a non-response from the province or whereas before like i said the coordinator would have been there facilitating this um the policy would have been hauled out and waved in front of everybody's face if they're not doing it just like like many things less than not a, happening less than should. efficient management yeah. less than the person there's the personnel issue as well maybe it's you know, not as many people yeah. or as many skilled people at the level of skill yeah. that they were previously. And, and I don't blame the IPS guys after if you're like knocking on the door to come in and eventually people, people aren't just really, you know, opening that door. Eventually yeah. you're going to say, you know, I've got a lot of cases to work on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to work then channel my energy on, a, on, on this other one where somebody really does want my help yeah. than me bashing my head against the wall trying to get you to listen to us to do things 
that are ultimately for the good of the investigation and for the community and getting a conviction. Yeah. You know, you're going to think, fuck, mess. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, no, I'm going to move on to other people who really do want my help. It's okay. We, we, we get, we get um, you know, we're, we're, on the adult, we're in the adult world Content. of podcasts, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. You know, it's hard not to turn this part. This hard podcast is hard to keep it from becoming a critique of the current police all of the time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but but interesting to follow this. I mean, I'd love to be involved. This themes is, that's going to come up a lot, guys. This is interesting. <laughs> I mean, for me, if I was in the back storm of the police, I'd be interested in this case for a few reasons. Partly, it's, it's serial, which is, again, what we loved. I loved in the police. But it's also a bit different than the norm. It's yeah. not the typical offering the job, like we said a moment ago, luring a woman to the felt, raping and murdering. This is a bit of a different guy. Yeah. So I would definitely be thinking, ooh, this is, this is interesting. You know, Different. it's sex workers, um, which isn't common. It's all together. He was keeping them in, looks like, on a premises, not leaving them out in the fields. So I think this would be a really interesting case to find out more. And I'd love to interview this guy for sure. These are the kinds of cases that you, as a listener or somebody that is thinking about, what am I going to do with my life? Um, if these are the kind of things that interest you as well, then um, you know maybe you would be considering getting into a career path that that is similar to Gerard's. You know, doing what Gerard did. If Gerard finds this stuff interesting, and you find it interesting, maybe you got so. My point is, I'm trying to seamlessly segue into the second half of our discussion today. We've discussed a couple of current cases. We'll keep track mm. of those, Gerard. Okay, do your digging, do some police work, figure out what's going on. I'd very much like to, and for me, I just want to, I'm most curious about your previous unit's involvement mm. in these cases um, and how that, con- you know, how, yeah, what, what they're doing to, to kind of help influence those investigations. Um, but the second part of our discussion today is going to be a little bit of an answering a question as to how do I become a Gerard, basically? And what is the, how does the world around Gerard, the world that you find yourself in, Gerard, how does that break down? You know, we often talk about, we use words like, uh, forensic psychology, investigative psychology, mm. profiling. Now. I think it's easy to speak about these things and to understand them all as the same thing, but they are there are differences. They, they you know each term comes with its own specific um, set of realities, and I wanted to unpack a little bit of that for the listener and to go. So, if you wanted to become a forensic psychologist or an investigative psychologist, or how would you go about doing that? And mm. um, what are some of the paths to that? And how do we delineate some of the spaces within this world of psychology being applied to criminality? Mm. Um, so let's start off with the simple question, Jared. How do you become you? Okay, so I'm going to answer this from the sort of South African perspective, because in other parts of the world, it, it obviously might be more dif- a different kind of pathway. Because um, ironically, the majority of the profilers in the world are not actually psychologists. They're, they're investigators who kind of got the right state of mind, they got further training, etc., and then 
became became profilers. So for me, um, as I said, I, I went and studied psychology, never thinking I'm actually going to do the forensic stuff. That only kind of started to formulate later on in my sort of studies and career. Um, and, you know, in South Africa at the moment, you can only register as a psychologist in about four different areas because that's what the Health Professions Council, which regulates psychology through the board, Professional Board of Psychology, which is a, a, a substructure of the HPCSA, only recognizes about four categories. You've got clinical psychology, counseling psychology, educational psychology, what else have you got? Industrial um, and research. Traditionally, those were the sort of five areas where you could become a psychologist, you put that on your letterhead, I'm an industrial psychologist or whatever. They then, a couple of years ago, added neuropsychology, which is a great area to add because that is such a specialized field. And then they were toying with the idea of adding the, another category, forensic psychologist. So at the moment in South Africa, there, there does not exist at our Health Professions Council the, 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 the title forensic psychologist. Nobody can actually call them that. I can't even actually call myself that. So on my letterheads, my website, my business cards, my reports, my email signature, I cannot say forensic psychologist. I can't even say forensic clinical psychologist or clinical forensic psychologist, you know, play around with the words. I'm actually only legally allowed to say clinical psychologist. Um, and that's actually even part of the ethical guidelines say that you, you can't just refer to yourself even just as a psychologist. You have to indicate what is your area of registration that's in the ethical guidelines. You can get in big trouble with the HPCSA if you don't do that. Because the reason would be if you are a, an industrial psychologist and you just put there a psychologist, you know, someone who's looking for counseling and assistance might phone you up and say, I'd like to make an appointment to see you. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons why you have to specify. So. I, for example, am registered as a clinical psychologist, although all the work I've been doing for the past, well, since 2001, has just been forensic work. I don't do counseling, I don't do therapy, I don't do any kind of other assessments that aren't linked to some kind of court-related matter. <clears throat> I still can't call myself anything other than a clinical psychologist. Um, so that's sort of the proof. That, you know, you go through your bachelor's degree, honors degree, and then you get selected to do your master's in one of those four or so areas that I've just mentioned now. So I would typically say to students, you know, if you're interested in the forensic psych side of things, um, it, probably going the clinical psychology route for your master's would be the right way to go. You know, do, as part of that, you'd have to do your dissertation, which is that research, you know, piece as part of your master's. Do like I did and do it on a forensic topic of your interest, you know, whatever that might be. You might be interested in family law stuff, then, you know, try and do your dissertation on that. If you're like in me, I did mine on serial murder. If you're interested in other areas, whatever your area of interest is, choose that as your topic for your master's dissertation. And then when you do your internship, maybe try and find an internship institution that has a forensic component, like Falkenberg, Starkfontein, Vescopies, all do court-ordered assessments for people competency to stand trial uh, or uh, criminal capacity. Um, um, or they work with people who come back, you know, who have been sent back by the courts to, for a period of time at Best Corpus because they murdered someone but they were mentally ill at the time. Or do your internship at, for example, the, the correctional services. Great opportunity to get involved and experience interviewing offenders, et cetera, and get involved in that side of it. So that's great ways to prepare yourself for, you know, working one day in, in if you want to get more on the investigative side, which we'll talk about in a moment. So. That is in South Africa what I typically say to people. Until the day we have something like a forensic psychology registration category with the Health Professions Council, that might lead to universities then having a master's in forensic psych. What the content of that will be, will be we're not quite sure. Because remember, the, the, the term forensic psychology, people think about it, 
then they think about what you see on TV, the profiler, the person helping solve a case. The reality is that's maybe like 2% of what people doing forensic psychology work are actually doing. The big chunk of it in South Africa is probably going to be things like custody assessments. Couples are divorcing, who the kid's going to go to, there's allegations of this or that or abuse by the one parent. That's probably a big chunk of what forensic psychs are doing in South Africa or working in the prison doing rehabilitation. Some are testifying in court at sentencing of offenders, et cetera, et cetera. So the majority of forensic psych in South Africa is not the investigative stuff that you see profilers doing on TV. So it's not Clarice Starling. It's not Mindhunter. It no. It's none of that. No. So how would you just, in a sentence, kind of define forensic psychology? Yeah. So, so like I said, for it, me. in the broadest umbrella sense of the word, it's anything to do with the justice system. And that doesn't necessarily mean criminal justice system. A lot of psychologists, like people who have expertise in the area of neuropsych, would be doing assessments on people, for example, that were in car accidents. And now there's a claim against the road accident fund, the RAF. And because this guy can't work, can't function anymore, can't work, um, etc. And now there's a civil claim. In other words, they want to sue somebody for money because, you know, this person who was an engineer was in a car accident, can't function as an engineer, and is claiming compensation from the road accident fund. Um, and then a neuropsychologist is very important in doing the kind of assessments to determine what's the level of deterioration from pre-accident to now, and is it permanent, and helping determine what is the amount of money that might need to be claimed. So a lot of neuropsych people or people with a background in neuropsychology are, are doing that kind of stuff. So that's another big area, civil claims. So forensic, as I said, anything to do with the justice system, which on the one side is a criminal justice system, which could be from the investigation stuff, like I used to do, but could be at the court, court phase at sentencing or arguing that this person can't stand trial because they have a mental illness or some other issue. Um, and then, like I said, on the other side, you've got the family law stuff, you've got the civil claims, like your road accident fund that I mentioned uh, at the moment. And then, with, so as I said, within that, you're going to get your investigative psychology, which is another term, which is really a sub-branch of your forensics, which is, that is about helping police uh, or doing research that helps police solve cases better or how police work and operate and think. Um, but very often it is also associated with helping them solve the cases by advising them on a violent crime case or you know, uh, a sexual crime case, et cetera, or a terrorism case. So forensic psychology, albeit it is interesting, it's not the, the sexy stuff we're thinking about when it comes to psychologists being involved in law enforcement. The sexy part is the, is the investigative yeah. psychology part, yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. Okay, it, it, but that's, if we think about that, kind of the, the stuff we see in kind of media, in mainstream media, where mm. it's the Clarice Starling types. That is more, that is the investigative psychology speciality. And I imagine that to actually become a contributing psychologist in that space is, is very hard. Yeah, I mean, you can't just finish your studies and go and start consulting in, I think, in any kind of forensic capacity, because it is quite specialized knowledge you need to have. You know, for the neuro people, you have to be properly trained in neuro, worked under supervision, hopefully done quite a lot of assessments. Before, I would really say, you know, you're going to be in a good position to start testifying in court as an expert. And, you know, with the investigative stuff, definitely in South Africa, there's no university teaching you that. So, you know, often people over-believe them in themselves. I think it's good to be confident of yourself. But when it comes to advising people when it comes to legal matters, you, you really want to make sure you do know what you're doing and you have proper supervision and guidance and training because of the, the, the impact of that evidence, if it's bad evidence, is quite 
can have quite a huge impact on derailing a case or that justice isn't actually served. So definitely, you know, know your limits, always try and learn more. And, you know, your master's studying is very good and what is what is the minimum necessary for you to ultimately register with your internship. But that's not the end of it. You know, what, you know, there's always continued professional development. You know, what is out there? And I present a lot of workshops to psychologists on forensic matters. Mm-hmm. And there are a few other people, good and bad, <laughs> also presenting sort of what we call CPD workshops here in South Africa. Um, and you always want to continue to develop and learn, whether it's on your own or going to conferences or workshops, trying to develop yourself. Yes, if you if there's things you can study overseas, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot of people saying, I want to go do my master's in America because there's a forensic psych course in Arizona. But also be aware that the fact that you've done a master's overseas doesn't automatically mean you're going to be able to come back here and register in South Africa as a psychologist because what they'll look at is, is that course equivalent to our minimum standards? If not, you'll probably have to do additional things. I know people who did a master's in forensic psych at Kent University in England came back and they said, well, South Africa said, well, what you did there doesn't equate to anything of our minimum standards, so you can't register. And she had she then got selected to do a clinical master's here in South Africa, did a whole clinical master's from start to finish, and then registered as a clinical psychologist. In the end, she's got a great, she's got a forensic psych M from overseas, and she's got a clinical psych here. So that's a wonderful combination, but that's a huge, huge time investment and money investment, because mm-hmm. you spent all that money to go overseas and study, didn't lead to you being able to register here to do a whole second master's in clinical psych, which is a three-year process because it's the first year, it's your internship, and it's your community service year. You know, that's, yeah, so just be if careful. You wanna, if you um, want to play in the Super Bowl with South Africa when it comes <clears throat> to crime, we're the Super Bowl country of crime. Yeah, so <laughs> just be careful thinking that, you know, I've got yourself. some money to go study overseas or do these online master's degrees. It isn't necessarily going to equate to allowing you to register here. And very often because it doesn't cover the same content in terms of the modules that mm. you're studying, Usually they don't include a internship component. Um, and as I said, we, clinical psychologists have to do a, a community mm-hmm. service year anyway. So just check that out before you spend a lot of money on doing a qualification from overseas. Yeah, I, I guess as well, contextualizing your personal career um, trajectory is, is interesting as well, because you know back in the early 90s when you were a student with you know um, the long hair picking up chicks, um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> no comment. So I've got that picture in my brain, so I can I can access it in my mind. I can confirm mind. the long hair. Maybe we can put it on Instagram of a, a, a retro photo of Jared from back the, in the, the day. The most asked question after people have read book one. Hey? <laughs> oh, was it? Mm. Yeah. Well, can I see a picture of you with your hair? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to try and convince you to we'll put one on Instagram. But uh, <laughs> what I was saying was back in the day, I mean, there weren't many oaks like you that were like thinking... Mm. I'm going to go interview serial killers, you know. You were, you were also in a, in a pocket where the country was changing politically yeah. and socially. Um, there's now a new, um, a, a new effort by the police, which hadn't been happening for, to look at black communities and what's going on with murder in these communities, mm. realizing that there's actually a lot of serial killers. Mm. Ki- there's a lot of serial killers running around and there's a lot of serial cases going on. And then somebody like you following on from Mickey Pistorius is somebody who has been nutty enough to go and find out about these guys yeah, <laughs> and be curious to speak to them. I mean, yeah, there I mean, just look, the, weren't many. The landscape has changed from politically, police, policing, <clears throat> people's interest in true crime things, the possibility that this is a career avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's definitely not the same as when I so you know, nineteen ninety started I think studying. A lot more young people go into psychology thinking that this is no, a, this a is what cool I want to be. Way to go. It's, a, it's a thing in TV programs yeah. that have you know since then since the nineties you know with what um, CSI and all these other things that over the years have have become on it's become part of the popular culture. Which means people yeah, see it exactly. on TV, read about it, podcasts, etc. Yeah. So, You're, whereas you are an OG true crime fan, that's basically what you are. Mm. What does yeah. OG stand for? Like an original gangster. Oh yeah, okay. Like you. you're yes, the original. That's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's the, the tra- trajectory, and then of course you know in South Africa, I would say see if you can get a job in my old unit. You know, they started to you know advertise more psychologist posts than when I you know after I've left. Uh, they started to advertise criminologist posts, even if you know, mm. um, and researcher posts, and get in anywhere you can, and um, then wiggle around and get exactly where you want to be within that sort of structure, and just get that exposure, etc. So, what was it that kind of sparked the interest for you initially? In why did you want to go and interview serial killers? What was it? Did you just watch Silence of the Lambs with your girlfriend or something <laughs> with the long hair? Yeah, look, I mean, the movie had already been out by then. Um, <laughs> that was when I was, I think, one first, Saturday a second-year student, I think, it came out. She was running her fingers through your hair. You were watching Silence of the Lambs. I can... <laughs> but I didn't go into psychology thinking I'm going to do this work. I don't. I guess because it wasn't part of the, the landscape that I didn't think this was a real career opportunity, you yeah. know? Um, and, and, and you said even in 2001 when you actually applied for the job, I mean... You know, on a scale of con- how on a scale of one to ten, how confident were you that you were going to be considered for that role? It was difficult to say. Even then, I mean, I thought I st- probably stood a fairly good chance because I'd done some stuff okay. on serials. You're interviewing them. That's a pretty good thing that might make me stand out compared to a lot of the other candidates who might be applying for the position. S- but you never know. I mean, you just you could just never say, "Oh, that's oh, that's definitely mine." And I think if you have that attitude, you're probably going to screw up. You interviewed with arrogance, and you probably won't get the job. So. No guarantees back then that I was going to get that particular position. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I said, I didn't go into psychology thinking this is what I'm going to do. It was even when I did my master's dissertation. Um, yes, because it's an extreme form of human behavior. And I think that's why I wanted to study clinical psychology, because I wanted to work with the extreme, you know, the schizophrenia, the people who are really doing and experiencing strange out there things. And of course, serial murder is an example of of strange out there behavior. I'm not saying it's mentally ill related, but it's an extreme of human behavior. So I suppose for me, it was almost as a logical that it would interest me. And then as I said, I had the opportunity with my colleague, Corbus Duplessis, who was studying with me. He was in the police. They gave him time off to go do his masters. We'd been studying our honors together, so we knew each other from those years. And he said, well, hey, I know the right people that I can speak to. You know, I know who Mickey Pistorius is. Let's go speak to her and say, could we get her blessing? Although these were people in the correctional services, you know, that were the custodians of these individuals. We didn't need police blessing, but we just, you know, thought that would be a good way to sort of go about it. And then, of course, if we wanted access to police cases, which we would have to ask the police for the case files. So, um, and yeah, so that was it. But again, not thinking even then, this is going to be my life. I guess, again, you look back and you realize someone else had a bigger plan for you. You just didn't realize it yet. Yeah. What's strange is that we've kind of, you know, there have been people like you that have been kind of brought up initially outside of the police system but in the very much in the space working in hospitals etc then going into the police system being growing up with the police you'd think that the institution would almost adjust itself for the better so start to create itself even stronger as an institution Mm. which houses people like you and therefore requires people like you and therefore a training kind of environment 
emer- you know, becomes mm. again, emerges and with more structure to facilitate that need. It's also, it's kind of sad well, that that's not really the case. You still kind of, like you did, in essentially, kind of fall into it. You know, you've got to kind of, yeah, there's, a, there's some luck involved here. It's mm. not like there's just a clear career path to this point yeah. to get these types of jobs. There's going to have to be, a, you've got to hustle and, and find a bit of luck in that in that Absolutely. Route as well. um, and, and sadly, the police, not just in the investigative psychology units area, in, in most areas, the police don't really think about succession planning. Yeah. They'll, be, you know, they'll be losing people who are experts in a particular area, like cell phone analysis. And they'll have sort of two or three left, and they'll squeeze them dry, work them to the bone, and they'll eventually either resign or be snapped up by private security companies who need those services, and they'll sit with nothing. And they won't really be very good at like, okay, we need to make sure that as the need grows, we grow, but also as people reach retirement age or just want to leave the police, we're not going to have a gap of knowledge because you can't suddenly give a new person, no matter how wonderful and enthusiastic and talented they are, you can't overnight give them five years worth of experience. So you need to start getting the right people in, grooming them so that if one or two people resign or for whatever reasons leave, it's not going to mean there's a massive gap. And that's, I think, unfortunately, what happened after I left. Bronwyn Stolars was still there for about a year. And then she left the police and there was nobody. Yeah. And then they kind of, about a year later, appointed one person in Cape Town, um, one or two in the other provinces. But again, it never gave them proper mentoring and training. Yeah. Even till today, they've not had proper mentoring and training in what they need to do. So how they've how they've grown it's like the tomato plant that doesn't have that string or that rod that they kind of cling to and help get them in a certain direction um if you don't fix or build new power stations as the yeah. electricity demand grows or as the country evolves then there's th- going to be problems what's there just eventually starts to break down and stop working mm. which is an analogy for i think so many things in south africa and it's sad that it's an analogy for kind of your reality in the police, so your space in the, your former space mm. in the police. Yeah, and again, the difficulty of attracting psychologists because we don't pay at all what even what the other government departments pay their psychologists. We pay significantly less, significantly less. Mm. But you're expecting people to do highly specialized and horrible work to some degree psychologically. The things you have to deal with. What if your view is not to be a psychologist? in this field in South Africa. Let's just pick two examples. Let's say where South Africans would go, the UK or North America. So so what would be your trajectory if you wanted to find yourself applying this trade in mm. one of those countries? Well, you know, I, I, I want to also raise this issue. A lot of South Africans say, I want to go work with the FBI's behavioral analysis units. Well, if you're not an American citizen, that's not going to happen. And those people who work in the behavioral analysis units, um, they typically were ex-law enforcement somewhere else. They then joined the FBI. They worked their way up, and eventually they ended up in the unit. You're not going to be employed straight into the unit. That's not how it works. Um, and even then, there were no full-time psychologists working in that unit. They would have very well-known forensic psychologists like Dr. Reed Malloy, who would consult when they needed them on cases. So. A, if you're South African, sorry, my friend, unless you've got an American passport, you're already that's a no. And you're not going to go straight into that unit. You'd have to join the FBI and then do the normal FBI stuff, be an agent here or there, and eventually hopefully get into that area. So a lot of dreams that I probably might have just sort of 
thrown yeah. a lot of water on or been a wet blanket, but you need to know this yeah. um, to alter your career path. But if you're in the United States, I think it's different there because like I said before, there's 17,000 independent law enforcement agencies. And like I always say, it's, it's like Joburg Central. Imagine if Joburg Central was its own police service. They hire who they want, they have their own uniforms, they have their own regulations, they have their own cars, their budget is obtained by the taxpayer of Johannesburg Central's money. They report to the mayor. That's kind of what the US is like, because they've got PDs, police departments, then they've got statewide police, and then they've got federal police like the FBI. And then if you drive to Parkhurst... That's a totally different law enforcement and agency. A totally different law enforcement agency, different set yeah. of uniforms, Parkhurst different badges on their police cars. necessarily go into Joburg Central's area and do policing. They might have, have preset agreements, like if they're chasing a suspect. But otherwise, they'd have to get hold of Joburg and say, hey guys, something there... You know, can you follow it up for us? It's so just think about that, folks. Think about that in another part of the world, how much harder that sounds yeah. to coordinate within a fairly specifically a fairly serials. small yeah. um, geographical area. Now think about the fact that when you think about the disappointment that is a lot of our policing, think about the fact that it's set up to be more successful because it's so much easier, because it's, mm. it should be so much easier because it's one police service. Yeah. It's one phone number. It's one uniform. One it's, DNA database. It's one color on the police car, basically. Yeah. So um, one DNA database. So um, it, it adds even more like disappointment to mm. the reality of policing. Yeah, Africa. a lot of things set up in South Africa that are really good for serials. Yeah. But if you're in the States, the point I wanted to get back to is that Sorry. there's so many independent law enforcement agencies. Each one of those is an agency you can, you as a say, qualified psychologist who maybe has some forensic expertise can go and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I can do for you. Um, you know, and they might or might not contract you to give training to consult on a case, I don't know. Mm. Um, so in, in that sense, you might have more possibilities because here, if you're not in SAPS, you're not in anything, <laughs> but at least there. And that's what happens. A lot of your retired FBI profilers, the world is their oyster in America because they can knock on 17,000 different police station or law enforcement agencies doors saying, this is who I am. This is the skill set I have. I can do training. These are the courses I present. I can do case consults on these types of cases. And probably, you know, out of those 70,000, somebody might, you know, contact you and say, hey, yeah, actually, we've got a case. Or, hey, yeah, we'd like some training in this area. So I guess the possibility of you getting involved to some degree in law enforcement as a private psychologist in the U.S. might be easier. But again, you also just have that responsibility of do you actually know what you're doing? Because if you mess it up, people's lives hang in the balance or justice hangs in the balance. So that's and even here, we've had some people who try to you know, in the area that they live, go to the police station and say, hey, I can help you with X, Y, and Z. And very often when we hear about it, we realize that these people don't actually have the skills to offer what they said they were actually going to offer. Yeah. Now, um, one more question on this. So, so Prof, you're a Vitz guy, yeah? Um, <laughs> Not a Vitz so, student ever, but I'm a Vitz uh, no, Prof, now, one, yeah. of the, one of the dudes there, um, one, of the, one of the brains. And... Um, I would imagine then you would suggest that, that VITS is a good psych department to go into because there would be well, some access to you and to your knowledge base. Are there, other, are there particular institutions in South Africa that you would recommend would be preferable if mm. this is your particular area of interest and, and for any reasons? Well, again, that would depend when you're asking. Um, so actually, I'm actually at VITS at the Forensic Medicine Department. I'm actually not associated with the psychology. Oh, the, I see, I, the I interesting see, thing is, is, since I qualified, I've had numerous appointments at universities 
UNISA in the crim depart criminology department and the police practice department. Um, WITS is forensic medicine department. Um, I've almost never had any association with the psychology oh, really? department. It's, okay. And I think it's because a lot of psychology departments in South Africa don't have an interest in forensic work. Okay. As surprising and ironic that would be with the amount of people who have an interest in forensic psychology, mm. The universities here tend to think of, we, no, we're, we're psychologists who do therapy and assessments. Mm. You know, we work in private practice or hospitals. They kind of look at this forensic stuff as, that's, you watch a lot of too much TV. Yeah, yeah. So you will we find We deal with the day-to-day -day daddy yeah. issues, not the extreme daddy issues. <laughs> exactly. So you will find here and there is a lecturer at a university who has an interest in forensic stuff. I do know, for example, at UNISA, as part of their master's course, they get about 10 two-hour lectures on everything from family law stuff, like I mentioned earlier, to I give I gave them a few lectures on on you know courtroom psychology, giving evidence, um, a little bit one lecture for two hours on psychological motivated crime. So UNISA does seem to have a bit of a, th a stream of forensic in its broadest sense lectures that they give to their master students. Um, but I would imagine if those lecturers resigned, and I was standing in for another lecturer who was not able to present lectures, but you probably find if those particular lecturers resign, that stream might not be there next year. So you kind of have to look at that time when you were applying for a university at master's level, for example. Who are the lecturers, and are any of them have any interest? And you can go onto their profiles on the, on the, on the, on the university's websites, and do any of them have an interest in forensic stuff? And that's then perhaps select that university because at least it has some kind of, and again, it might not be the investigative stuff, but at least it's a forensic stream that'll help you understand a bit the broader context, et cetera. So that's the challenge. And I mean, I don't know it, yeah, which other universities, are, I, I, I said WITS, I don't have any knowledge of what's going on in their psych department if they have people who are interested in forensic stuff. Okay. And then, I mean, I would say select that varsity and then, of course, choose your dissertation topic. Maybe ask that person to be your supervisor to get you in some form or fashion involved in the world of forensics. And like I did with my students now that I was lect lecturing to, I said, hey, I've got this court case. Um, I'm testifying in Middleburg in this right-winger guy who I'm testifying at the center scene. And some of those students sort of came along to that. And then the students that I do lecture at WITS through the forensic medicine department, although they're doing the, an honors in forensic sciences, some of them came, to, came with me in other court cases when I was testifying this year. So, yeah, kind of like by hook and by crook, you have to try and figure out who's doing what at the time that you personally are going to be doing, um, you know, they're getting to that level. So the answer to my original question, is, there's not really a simple answer. There's no straightforward process. There's like no I said, the general one is go study in the direction of clinical psychology and there try where you can yes. by hook and by crook. Choose a place that might have a little bit of a forensic theme amongst their lecturers in the master's course. Choose a forensic dissertation. Work at Vescopies or somewhere else for your internship that has a bit of a forensic component. You almost have to build it yourself yeah. um, in that fashion. Go and listen to the podcast. Absolutely. Um, um, go along. Find out when Gerard's testifying in court. Go along to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like I said, with the workshops I present, which is typically aimed at qualified psychologists because they're continued education units. You know, um, they get you continued professional development units. I have had some people who are, you know, honors student, mostly some master students here and there, some internships who come on those courses just for their own personal development. You know, if those are being, you know, advertised and. Apparently, Trump University wasn't very good, but maybe Lubbockachni University, hey, is a thing we should yeah, consider, maybe for for investigative psychologists. But do understand that forensic psychology then is basically like psych any psychology that is related to the justice system yeah. to some 
something to do with justice in the yeah. world. And um, investigative psychology is really what you're thinking about when the you're thinking of forensic, what yeah. you see in the TV shows, etc. That is, is like where that. you are applying your psychology to assist the police in yeah, their efforts to yeah. catch or to understand mm. something about a case that is being worked on. Another way of getting involved is, for example, we started the African Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, which is more looking at threat assessment whether it's in the context of workplace violence, stalking, domestic mm. violence, threat assessment, terrorism, threat assessment, because we have, uh, for our members, and even our non-members can attend these, as webinars on a sort of three-weekly basis on various different types of threat assessment-related topics. We've got a conference now in November 21 and 22, Monday, the Monday and the Tuesday of that week in, uh, at the Marriott and the Melrose Arch here in, in Johannesburg, where we've got people speaking about terrorism issues. I'm going to speak about that threat assessment I did on a, a right-wing terrorist recently. We've got people speaking about mental illness and violence. We've got people speaking about active shooters, about stalking. So that's another way that you can be exposed to things that are touching on the world of forensic um, forensic psychology too. And you don't have to be qualified to be participating in those webinars, coming to the conference, etc., becoming a member even. Well, thank you, Jared. I think this episode has been a good example of the fact that our our format is really a discussion, guys. So some episodes we'll talk in at length about specific individual crimes. Sometimes we'll talk about things that are going on currently and give you some knowledge on um, Gerard's world, the world of investigative psychology and forensic psychology, etc. Um, if you have any suggestions for particular episodes, this is some, and I know that we have received suggestions in the past on the website, and some we've done. Um, please do. I mean, you know, we are very um, much rolling out new episodes now, one a week, every Monday. You can uh, get get a new episode. You will get a new episode. But do tell us uh, any particular topics, and if you just have any specific questions for Gerard that you'd like us to include in some of our discussions then um, please do send those through as well, any, any specific to particular cases or what have you. Um, also, do get on our social media and um, follow our YouTube page in, in particular. So do do that um, because it's nice to have more subscribers on that platform. Um, do share the podcast with friends and family and uh, people that you think might be interested in the podcast. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about the Mariska Duplessis murder, yes, um, which is a very interesting case. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about, um, yeah, a very common type of murder where it's people that um, once walked down an aisle suddenly decide that um, they need to uh, alleviate that part of their life. Um, so we'll be talking about that case next week. Thank you very much, Gerard, as always. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, listeners, for keeping supporting us. And we will be back next week with more Profiler Africa. Do get in touch on social media. Have a great week.